0: Welcome to the official podcast for the National Association for Business Economics, your one-stop shop for catching up on the latest in business economics on the go. Be sure to hit the follow button and turn on notifications to stay up to date on our latest releases. Today's podcast is the recording of the NABE Global Economic Outlook Session at the ASSA Annual Meeting on January 6, 2023. Over the course of the next two hours, you will hear from President Raphael Bostic of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, Philip Lane, Chief Economist and member of the Management Board at the European Central Bank, Mary Lovely, Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, Robin Brooks, Chief Economist at the Institute of International Finance, and Elaine Buckberg, Chief Economist at General Motors. The session is moderated by Julia Coronado, president and founder of Macro Policy Perspectives LLC and NAB president. Without further ado, let's kick it off with remarks from President Bostic.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Julia, uh, for your quick quick reaction to to our (laughs) panel crisis. And uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, It's very good to see people in three dimensions at this meeting. Uh, This has been a a long time coming for me and uh, it's really just a pleasure to be here. It's always one of my favorite events of uh, of a calendar year. It's really a nice way to to start like talking deep econ um, on these issues. So as Julia said, I'm going to talk about um, the U.S. outlook and uh, to do that, I thought it would be helpful just to start uh, by providing some context. Uh, And uh, you know, when I Uh, talk about the economy today people often don't have the context in mind and to me the most important aspect here is that we are still in a pandemic economy and all the dynamics that occur that we're grappling with today are a direct byproduct of responses and reactions to us being in the in the pandemic Uh, and and the reason i like to talk about that is because Um, If you go back to April and March of 2020, the big fear that people had was that the pandemic was going to lead to massive losses of jobs. People were gonna be thrown out of their homes with the the, uh, tremendous failures of businesses. um, And that if we were going, if that happened, the recovery of the economy would be incredibly difficult. Uh, And so policy responded. Uh, the Fed dropped its interest rates basically to zero, started providing facilities to improve uh, liquidity and functioning of markets. Uh, on the fiscal side, there was a lot of uh, response and waves. And by and large, that doomsday outcome did not happen. Like The policies um, and the response and reaction uh, were, uh, were successful. And output recovered rapidly. Uh, and um, from the policies, but also because uh, people were still getting their usual incomes, but they weren't doing their usual spending during the pandemic because they weren't going on vacation, they weren't going to restaurants, those sorts of things. So people were really strong. uh, And um, the response has been quite positive in that regard. Uh, But what that meant and what resulted was strong demand that persisted. And the supply side difficulties that arose because of the pandemic really creating this gap. And so we have this imbalance between aggregate demand and aggregate supply, which has driven a lot of the inflationary pressures that we are grappling with today. So the real issue and the question we have to face is, like, how do we get aggregate supply and aggregate demand more in balance so that the pressures abate and we can get to a a, a situation where people are not seeing prices as they're enemy, but rather it's just a, a feature of the economy. Um, so we started grappling with this in 2022. Uh, you all know the Fed has done a lot through the, through the course of the year to move from maximum accommodation into a more restrictive space. And now the question that uh, we are facing and that everybody asks is, so how restrictive will the Fed get and what does that mean and how will that shape the trajectory of the economy? I actually like to flip the question to say, um, how the economy evolves will shape how much the fed has to do and so we need to be mindful of and continually look at how the gap between aggregate demand and aggregate supply is responding over time uh, and that will really guide uh, the need for us uh, you know the decisions that we have to make in terms of making good policy so where are we now i think that the u.s economy is definitely slowing if you look at the GDP numbers, they've come down uh, a markedly, um, a market amount. Uh, we have seen interest rate sensitive sectors uh, slow dramatically. You think about the housing market, um, and there, across the country, uh, we have started to see significant slowing there. And when I talk to businesses, you know, one of the things they they tell me consistently is that labor markets, which are at historically tight levels are starting to ease that some of the challenges that they were facing uh, or the degree of challenge they were facing in the summertime, uh, we're, they're stepping back to that. It's, it's, not, it's still not easy to find workers, but it's easier than it was in the summertime. And so those are all signs that the economy is slowing in a, in a pretty positive way. Uh, but I will say that the slowing is, is only happening at a, at a very gradual, steady rate. And so the imbalance is not narrowing rapidly, but it's kind of proceeding in in sort of an orderly fashion, if you want to think about it like that, uh, which suggests that it's going to take some time for us before we'll get to a space where inflationary pressures return to their more historic levels. Um, And I I want to also say that um, people ask me a lot about sort of recessionary pressures. I think that the strength of the economy moving forward uh, has given it, a lot of momentum that should allow it to be able to absorb a lot of our restrictive policy uh, movements without pushing the economy into a space where um, it starts to contract in a significant way. Um, And you just see this in today's job number even, if you, uh, the Wall Street Journal had a chart uh, showing just the month to month, and it looks like it's just a straight line that's heading down to sort of a more uh, normal position. So that kind of orderly progression suggests that the economy is moving in ways um, that we will start to see um, see that imbalance disappear. Um, The other thing I would would say is, you know, inflation is one of our dual mandates. It's a thing that uh, inflation in the U.S. is too high, um, and we are going to do all we can to bring it down. Uh, If you look at the inflation dashboard, so the Atlanta Fed has created something we call an inflation dashboard, and in that dashboard we list, like, nine different ways to measure inflation. Seven of the nine are showing that there's either been a plateau of inflation or is starting to come down. Uh, And that's a sign that we may have gotten to a peak level. Uh, I am not willing to say that with any degree of certainty because one thing I've learned through the pandemic is every time you think you know something, the world happens in some other way. So we're gonna continue to watch, but there are signs that things are moving uh, in a a positive direction. So in terms of the outlook for uh, 2023, you know, my expectation is that the economy will continue to slow. I think uh, my, my current projection is for GDP to come in uh, maybe at 1% for the year. So, you know, at historic levels, uh, that is pretty slow. Um, I see inflation, unemployment, uh, the job situation. I think labor markets are going to continue to be strong for quite a bit of the year. Um, but as we move f- further and further, as the economy slows more, um, the pressure in the job market is going to, to ease. And um, my projection is that unemployment will rise slightly from where we are today, maybe to around 4%. Um, certainly not at levels. I'm not expecting there to be a, a, a major cratering in, in jobs in the US in the, in the next year. And then in terms of inflation, um, uh, I think we're gonna start to see inflation hope, hopefully move down in a significant way uh, my projection is that inflation will be somewhere at around 3% by the end of the year, uh, and uh, that will be a significant move from where we are today, and I think it will be a sign that our policies are moving uh, are being effective. Now, um, I did want to just say a couple other things. Um, uh, one is that all of this is a function of if the economy proje- advances the way we hope it does. And um, for me, if, if that happens... I think our policy rate, there's still more work to do because uh, the labor market has been stronger than I expected. Inflation has been more persistent than I expected. So I think from where our policy stance is now, uh, we should get to a level above 5%. Uh, I don't think we'll need to go uh, a lot above 5%, but but there is still more work to do. Uh, the second thing I would say is that it is really important that uh, that we as the fed are clear and persistent in our policy posture uh historic historically uh we've we've had persistent challenges in inflation in this country when the fed is not uh resolute in terms of its uh, commitment to stamping out inflation so when we get to whatever level we get to it's my view and hope that an expectation that we will just stay there and let that policy posture Uh, hold for an extended period of time. In my projection, that will be the rest of 2023 and well into 2024, so we're not going to be bouncing policy back and forth. We're going to really let the restrictiveness hold. Um, And then the third thing is um, I have continually been uh, uh, gratified and pleased by the resilience of the American economy. Consumers have been resilient in terms of how they think about the economy and their prospects. Business leaders also have remained optimistic and confident that we are on a path back to uh, our steady state and our long run uh, target of 2%, and we're going to get there. And and I think that on some level, that's the most important aspect of all that we have today. Now, I was a psych major uh, in college. And as I've sort of looked at the economy and sort of engaged with it, both as a person and as a policymaker, psychology matters a lot. And so when you look at expectations and when you look at how businesses and consumers talk about things uh, and how they think it's going to be two years and three years from now, um, it's been quite positive. And that's super encouraging for me to say that uh, we're, we're, going to, uh, we're going to get to where we need to get to. It's going to take some time. But the American public seems to appreciate and understand that and is uh, responding accordingly. So I will stop there and turn it over to Philip.
2: uh, Good good morning, and I appreciate the invitation uh, to to join this panel. I mean, it's useful for everyone, including myself, to to listen to to this, I suppose, uh, international perspective. And my role is really to focus in on the uh, European situation. So what what I'm going to do uh, is essentially have a quick uh, overview about where we are now. Uh, We we had two weeks ago or three weeks ago now uh, monetary policy meeting, we had a new quarterly uh, uh, projection, um, and of course, uh, you know, where I'll end up is the implications for, for policy. And maybe just as a reminder for this audience, it, is that if you roll back a year, uh, Europe was uh, in, in a fairly uh, substantial lockdown mode at the end of uh, 21 and the start of 22. So what you see here um, is it, at the end of last year, Q4, or end of 21, I should say now, Q4, 21, Q1, 22, essentially consumption was dead. There'd been a good recovery in consumption in summer 21, and then with the extensive lockdown with Omicron, uh, there was not much consumption action uh, you know, in, in those months. But what's happened uh, since then, essentially from... Uh, April onwards, last year, its consumption has recovered. So you see in uh, Q2 22, uh, Q3 22, uh, that's something which had happened quite a bit earlier in the Fed situation, you know, which is the recovery of domestic demand, is, has now been part of, of what's going on in the European situation. So, so that's a very important context, is, is the nature of inflation, the nature of activity levels has moved over the course of the last year. Uh, However, you could also look at this chart and focus on on the overall, which is uh, the kind of drop in GDP momentum from Q2 to Q3, Um, and uh, also what we've said is we do expect at the end of last year, Q4, and also this this quarter, in fact, maybe a mild recession is currently going on. What you can see, uh, this is backed up on, on the right chart here between the manufacturing and services profile which is essentially manufacturing had recovered in line with the global bounce back in 21, but then has been hampered by supply chain difficulties towards the end of last year, end of 21, and start of 22. And, so, and then we've had the kind of global slowdown since then. So manufacturing has been on that path, where services really did respond to the reopening of the European economy since you know, April, Easter last year, uh, since then. But what's also true is, is uh, this autumn, uh, services has also started to, to normalize, to slow down. Now, t- just thinking about, uh, which is common between us and the U.S., it is definitely uh, one factor which we, we all said was going to come, has come, but, of course, more slowly uh, than, than might have been hoped, which is the easing of supply chain uh, bottlenecks. So we do see, compared to the peak at the end of 21, all last year, this has been improving. And again, this helps explain why uh, we do think the recession, uh, if there is a recession going on, it's at the mild end. Because the easing of bottlenecks has meant that, that uh, manufacturing, car production in particular, for example, has been able to produce to fill the backlog of, of orders even if the kind of forward-looking indicators might be a bit weak. Uh, And just the right chart, if you do a supply-demand decomposition, yes, one reason why bottlenecks are easing is is that demand is softening uh, globally, but it's also the case the supply component has turned around. There is actually less pressure in terms of uh, uh, factory shutdowns, uh, labor shortages on the supply chains. Of course, now with the China reopening, uh, let's see uh, about that in the next few weeks. So let me uh, come again to the European situation uh, for households. Uh, And what you see is, is, um, you know, the start of last year, uh, um, end of, you know, try 21, start last year, consumers are so happy that essentially the pandemic looked like to be uh, uh, on on easing and they were looking forward to the future in a fairly bright way and then of course you had the war come along and in terms of a pretty significant zero one step decline in many indicators uh, a lot happened uh, when the war uh, uh, came and you see this here which is a pretty big uh, drop you know bigger than the uh, spring 2020 pandemic drop in consumer expectations and although it has been improving in recent weeks because we don't have the worst-case scenario in terms of uh, gas rationing and so on, uh, it's still a, a lot lower than the start of last year. And so what we see is in some key areas uh, of the economy, um, it makes sense that this, this shows up. So, for example, throughout know, 21, start of last year, uh, consumers were very bullish on housing. You can see here from our own survey... They were essentially saying, yes, you know, I have lots of spare cash now. I need a bigger house because of working from home. Uh, there's a lot of optimism, a lot of money going into housing. And essentially, this has turned around, both because of, of, of the, the, the general confidence effect and also uh, you know, really throughout the course of last year, the fact that uh, mortgage rates, which are key to longer-term interest rates, have been moving up. Um, and what we do see is, is uh, much milder now than in the U.S., there is, you know, the, has the investment has been in co- contractory mode for a number of months now, um, and that that, that is, uh, I think, uh, relevant. Now, th- the big difference between us and the U.S. in many ways is, is the terms of trade. The U.S. is blessed by being uh, more or less balanced in its energy profile, uh, whereas we're a huge uh, energy importer. And so, what you see here is this really big uh, turnaround in, in the euro area uh, trade balance. Uh, essentially, we're paying a lot more for energy imports. We do see, uh, in recent observations, energy imports are dropping. There's been a, a big campaign to be become, become more energy efficient, uh, and so on, uh, and also to, to, to you know, in many ways, to try and ease, ease the, the uh, energy shock. Um, and also, the prices have turned around more recently. So, on the right side, you see both a very big surge in, in energy prices... Which here, you know, on, on this index, is just a gigantic increase in energy import prices. The overall terms trade has moved out, down quite a bit. Uh, it's been partly offset because Europe, you know, is big manuf- uh, exporter of high-end goods, uh, you know, BMW, Mercedes, luxury items, which has benefited from the global uh, demand for durables and so on, uh, which, which is an offset. So the labor market, uh, what we have is essentially, uh, maybe I'll start on the right chart, is essentially, these are really strong indicators in the European context. The euro area is in the middle of that chart, and we have unemployment in the mid-sixes. This is something that's not been seen in over 40 years. We also have the the vacancy rate, uh, the most timely is from Indeed, uh, which is, again, nothing like the U.S. situation. Uh, but in the European context, it's look, directionally similar to the U.S., a lot more vacancies than normal. I also, in this chart, show you the variation, because, um, of course, depending who you bump into from Europe, you'll get a different answer, because, of course, uh, in, in Southern Europe, the labor market is just basically a lot a lot uh, looser than, than in Northern Europe, and you can see that from the different vacancy rates on that chart. But what we do have, and it's a bit like Raphael was just saying, Um, is there's a lot of resilience, more resilience than many people might have expected in the European economy. We still have all of these uh, PMI indicators for employment, which have come down, but they're still all in expansionary territory. So what we do have is basically, again, a situation where it's not the case, the EU area is foreseen uh, by by those who are making employment decisions to, to face a very big contraction in any sense. And so that labor market momentum is there. Let me point out from the left chart is it's important in the European context to recognize a lot of the employment is part-time. Now, this is, not, this is by and large, it's people who want to work part-time as opposed to being rationed and can only get part-time hours. So we have a big increase in employment compared to pre-pandemic, uh, much less so in terms of hours. Uh, and the, the, the reconciliation is, by the way, a lot of expansion in the public sector, in the health sector in particular, and these are areas where maybe there's more uh, scope for for, uh, part-time work. Okay, a very big issue in the European situation is fiscal, Uh, and so I want to spend a minute on this. Uh, So what we have here is the red diamond is what we taught in September, Uh, the, the black circle is what we taught in December. And what we have now is over the course of 2022, uh, big revisions in the amount of fiscal support, both for 22 itself, but even more so for 23. So now there's nearly two percentage points of GDP being injected into the European economy uh, in 23, whereas we had that around 0.4 in our September assessment. So in terms of, you know, a big change in policy support, uh, you can see it there. And that's also projected to be there in 24 and 25 in a lesser but still significant way. And on the right chart, what what you see here is a lot of these are basically uh, direct price uh, interventions. So so they are basically price-reducing fiscal subsidies. They're price-reducing when they're imposed. They're price-increasing when they are reversed. And of course, the schedule of reversing a lot of that is going to be in 24 and 25. Then the, 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 to the right is a, a lot of these are not targeted. So there's, there's not a means-tested component uh, to a lot of these. So again, in terms of efficiency, you might say uh, that that's not, that's not uh, very good. And so uh, the reason why this is complicated is, um, you know, simultaneously we, we have all of these injections connected to the energy in war. On the other hand, we do have the expiry of pandemic measures. So, so when you think about the overall fiscal action, it, it, it's complicated. Um, and so what you do see is fiscal ratios generally did improve quite a bit last year because of the recovery in GDP and the easing of pandemic measures. But what is true compared to what we expected a, a number of months ago is in 23, uh, fis- fiscal deficits are slightly getting wider rather than improving, but then that, that improvement uh, is projected uh, officially in uh, 24, 25. So on the right side, what you do see is um, a, a big impact on, on GDP, but especially on inflation, because a lot of these are price, directly administered price, essentially interventions, which have, did reduce the inflation rate last year, will reduce inflation rate this year, but has a big upward effect on inflation in 24, because when these are lifted, um, it's going to go in the opposite direction, and also in 25. And this helps to explain what I'm going to show you next, the profile for inflation. Uh, This is maybe uh, in the early 1970s in the U.S. I was reading Alan Blinder's book uh, uh, over the last week or two. Uh, It's very impressive when price controls were imposed and then lifted in the early 70s in the U.S., you do you do get this profile, and so what we see uh, in the uh, European uh, profile is the left chart tells you what's actually happened, including uh, the, the decline in inflation reported this morning um and then what's a fairly big drop expected this year from the start of this year to the end of this year a fairly big drop but uh, what what was maybe newsworthy in in our December projections uh, is that you know, we are more pessimistic about inflation, especially in 2024, uh, a lot, in part because of those fiscal measures, but in part also that the kind of um, pass-through of the big en- energy shock to, to core inflation uh, will be ongoing even in 24. Let me comment a little bit on, on the uh, inflation number today. So what we saw today was a big, essentially a big drop in energy inflation in Europe which, you know, if you're living, watching the numbers every day, is not too surprising. Uh, but, so the, if this does persist, uh, in the same way the big increase in energy prices has, has been a, a big uh, upward pressure also on food prices and also on core inflation, because energy is such a big input into every other sector in the economy, the easing of energy uh, prices will also feed in over time if it persists, into less pressure on food inflation, less pressure on corn inflation. So we we should uh, recognize uh, that, but of course uh, we we also should should recognize the uncertainty about the future path of energy prices. But let me say, even uh, and we should welcome the fact that energy prices have eased quite a bit, Uh, but let me say um, that this is not conclusive uh, for the overall inflation dynamic, because what we do think, and it's basically embedded in, the, in our forecast, is that the momentum of inflation for the next two or three years will essentially be a handover from the original energy shock and also the pandemic reopening effects into essentially wage dynamics will be quite important. And the reason why that is it's pretty straightforward is this, is that what we've seen is a decline in uh, real wages. So we have a fairly tight labor market in a European context, uh, but what we're seeing is a sizable decline in real wages, basically because uh, the, nego- the wages that were agreed a year ago or two years ago obviously have not kept up with, with the inflation that's actually happened. So the kind of, this wage gap is going to put upward pressure on inflation uh, f- for the next number of years. And tracking um, how much how exactly strong will be wage uh, pressure is going to take time. Uh, energy is moving quite quickly, but, but this is going to uh, take time to, to focus on. And let me uh, zero in on, on this chart about wages uh, to, the, to the far right uh, on the screen. Uh, so these are the, uh, what we see in the wage negotiations that happened in the final quarter, uh, and you can see they're now coming in around 5%. So 5% increase for 22 and a 5% increase for 23. So again, uh, you might say that's, in the context of inflation uh, of 9 point something, um, this remains contained and moderate. Um, And we have uh, essentially factored into our forecast uh, wage increases of that order uh, this year and more wage increases uh, above normal levels in 24, 25. And this is where um, essentially the, the issue is going to be is, is tracking how much of that domestic uh, source of inflation, um, where exactly, uh, how strong it's going to be. So I'm mindful of time. So let me uh, uh, come, come to the end. It is important, by the way, uh, to recognize these uh, within-the-year effects are going to be quite important. So, so on the left side there, you see inflation uh, in 23. If, if you take Q4 on Q4, will be 36 um, but, you know, if you do the – our conventional, unlike the Fed, is to do annual average inflation, and it's going to be 6-point-something. of course, there's carryover effects there. But in terms of within the year, it's moving from 9.2 in, in uh, 22 to 3.6. So that's a lot of uh, inflation reduction from base effects, essentially, uh, mostly uh, next year. So in terms of monetary policy, uh, you know, you can look at the charts on the ECB website – but let me just come to, our, to, what, to what our uh, commitment is. It is that um, we, we uh, raised the, the, the policy rate to 2% in our December meeting, we also have pretty specific uh, uh, guidance um, for, for uh, what's going to happen in the near term. And where this comes from is essentially if you run any kind of uh, policy uh, uh, simulation, you know, what kind of level of interest rates do you need? to make sure that inflation comes back to 2% in a timely manner. Uh, it's, it's not going to be 2%. It's going to be uh, more than 2%. Uh, is he going to need that? Uh, and so we're quite comfortable with providing uh, this forward guidance. But let me also make clear, I mean, these decisions will be data-dependent and will follow meeting-by-meeting meeting approach because of the uncertainty we face. Uh, we'll have a new forecast in March, uh, which will be informative, as will... Uh, our future forecast through the course of the year. Let me just finish, say we we also uh, have been moving on on the balance sheet, and maybe to emphasize here, for us, a very large part of the balance sheet were were, were these targeted lending operations. These have dropped already quite a bit, they're scheduled to drop quite a bit uh, between now and June, because a lot of the payments will have to be repaid next June, they may be repaid a bit earlier, but definitely by June. So, if you can say, well, what's happening with balance sheets? Because on the right side, you might say the roll-off of the bond portfolio is pretty minor, uh, but in terms of the overall balance sheet, with also Teltro's uh, coming down from over two trillion uh, pretty quickly, uh, that's going to be has been relevant and will be relevant uh, uh, this this spring. Let me stop there. Thank you
3: very much.
4: Good morning. I'm Elaine Buckberg, I'm the Chief Economist of General Motors. And while we get my slides up, let me let me begin. So I, first of all, uh, we're so honored on behalf of NAEP to have both uh, President Fostic and ECB board member Philip Lane here with us today. And my role is before we move on to other parts of the world, to China and to emerging markets, to pull together some of the big themes that really um, are global as we look forward into 2023. And the first is slowing global growth, pressured by the ongoing repercussions of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, including the way it drove up inflation virtually globally, and therefore also led central banks around the world to raise interest rates, putting that pressure on growth. And they're trying to quell still high inflation, and it does look uh, like we will see moderating inflation, although still above central bank targets as we go through 2023. And we already see substantially improved global supply chains. Uh, And that also means as we look at commodity prices, in general, the outlook for them is to be down modestly below the average of 2022 levels, although we'll see Uh, a more dramatic drop in oil prices. And then we're still in an extremely volatile global economic and geopolitical environment, and that means that uh, we have to acknowledge a lot of uncertainty around our projections and that unexpected shocks may well hit us, and so we need to be humble about all of our projections. So let's get into the data and some forecasts so first of all global gdp growth is expected to slow to about a two percent pace in 2023 and here i'm looking at bloomberg consensus forecasts of professional forecasters uh, mostly in the financial sector here and you can see that the projection for 2023 uh, globally is about two percent with further recovery in or with recovery in 2024 to about 2.9 percent and the dotted lines show you the top ten and bottom ten of those forecasters if you look at from how growth forecasts are, are evolved and here we look at the IMF forecast here we're comparing October 2022 uh, versus April 2022 I feel like I've jumped further so just the change uh, since after the war began and you can see that uh, the solid lines are the current forecast the april 22 and the dotted ones are october and you can see that those 2023 forecasts came down uh about an average of a percentage point more like half of a percentage point for 2023 on emerging markets but for advanced economies uh actually about one and a half percentage points and In most of the large economies, GDP growth is going to step down in 2023, again, as it did in 2022. And here we've ordered economies by the 2023 forecast with Europe. Uh, In here, these are um, the forecasts, the, the historical data is IMF, the forecasts are Bloomberg consensus. Again, IMF is expected to be, I'm sorry, the Eurozone is minus 0.1%, U.S. consensus about 0.4%, although I'll say my own forecast is 1%, um, and sort of gradually going up, but a deep step down in virtually everywhere, um, with the exception of China, that with the abandonment of its zero COVID policy, is expected to rebound. And I expect that this 4.7% consensus forecast will get revised up in the coming months as we see how fast these COVID waves uh, go through China. And Mary will get into depths on, on China shortly. Um, purchasing manager indices help tell us what's going on in terms of uh, really real-time economic activity, right? And it's the least one of the least lagged economic statistics uh, internationally so here these are composite indices cont- considering both manufacturing and services sector where 50 is the threshold for expansion and in the most recent readings for december for emerging markets it's right on the 50 line so neither expanding contracting but for developed markets it's it's a 47 reading so showing advanced economies in aggregate are contracting across their manufacturing and services sector in general that's a deeper contraction in manufacturing than services in terms of the inflation outlook, um, it rose significantly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And here we're comparing uh, October 22 versus January 22. So the IMF put out uh, forecasts uh, right before an invasion in Ukraine. And you can see how large these jumps are. And in general, these are about four percentage point jumps for 2022 before and after Russia's invasion in Ukraine and looking forward for 2023, it's still about two percentage points higher than uh, before the invasion. And, pardon me, i went in the wrong direction. And that continued to change. So even if you look at the April readings from the IMF after the war began, you can see that those inflation forecasts continued to go up even after that, as the, the persistence of infl- that inflation rose rapidly, became more persistent. And perhaps the war became per- more persistent than those April forecasts suggested and that those inflation forecasts continued to rise about, about 1.5% globally and for advanced economies and about 1% the 2023 forecast, you can see here, though, do come down substantially from 2020, but remain well above prior levels. And looking at specific countries here, again, we're ranking by the 2023 forecast. And you can see that in virtually every country, with the exception of Egypt, we see moderating uh, inflation based on Bloomberg consensus forecasts in 2023 from 2022, but vastly higher than in uh, 2021, Uh, and there's just a few exceptions to this high inflation, Japan, China, uh, and Saudi Arabia are really the only ones that have maintained inflation in the 2% range. And while inflation rates here, preliminarily, to have peaked in many markets. The current inflation rates, shown in red, are well above central bank targets. The green lines are the target if it's a a single level. Uh, The green uh, areas show ranges where those apply. And you can just see how vastly high they are and um, what challenging work that Raphael and Phil are working on for everyone to bring that down. So a lot of work to do, and those forecasts of moderating inflation in 2023, uh, pretty much without exception, do not get inflation back to to central bank targets in the current year. And most central banks have been tightening monetary policy, here again, ranked um, by the current rate. Uh, You can see how much higher central bank uh, rates are above where they were a year ago, so the right-hand bars are current, the left-hand bar is the beginning of the tightening, although Phil has kindly corrected me that the ECB's true policy rate is 2.0%, and the 2.5% is their MRO, So, uh, but just huge increases, uh, especially from near-zero levels in all but a few of the emerging markets, Mexico, Egypt, and Brazil. So. Julia promised that I would speak from an industrial perspective. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that improved a lot over the past year was global supply chain. So this is the New York Fed global supply chain industry. Phil also showed. And so you can see that how uh, it's come down from levels of near 4 at its peak in late 2021 to 1.2. Now that's still elevated from as sort of a base level of 1.0, because it's a standard deviation index, but there's a vast improvement, and uh, part of the healing has had to do with fewer disruptions um, due to COVID, but also uh, some shift in preferences back from goods to services, enabling just congestion in the freight, freight supply chain to improve, and indeed global shipping costs Uh, have come down from their peak of eight times what their pre-pandemic level was. But don't miss that they're still twice their pre-pandemic level. So a vast improvement um, and throughput is much better. And you can look at port congestion and so on. But it still remains elevated uh, compared to pre-pandemic levels. So what about auto? Because we've been a big contributor to slower growth and especially higher inflation in the US. So this graph shows you plant downtime. And you can see how much higher plant downtime was in 2021 due to chip supply issues than it was in 2022, where we still have more than we, we did have pre-pandemic, you can't see that on the graph, but I can assure you of that, the unexpected plant downtime. But the number of vehicles cut from production in 2022, uh, from scheduled production was about 4.4 million uh, um, versus about 10 million in 2021. Auto production was still below uh, where it was on pre-pandemic levels. And if we look at sort of at a fairly clean year of 2019, auto production globally was 89 million. So still lower, but this is improving. And I can say from the perspective of General Motors that we continue to see chip supply improving quarter over quarter, although not yet at uh, the levels that we saw in 20, 18, 2019, 2020. Um, but still an improvement. And so, but these supply constraints, because it held back production, held back auto sales around the world. Here, um, the color coding's pretty intuitive, but it's relative to a base year of 2019, because 2020 and 2021 had so, their own disruptions. So industry sales through November, the last uh, month available was 71 million, but that was still 6%, nearly, below 2021 and 14%. below 2019 levels. That should improve next year um, but you've got a combination of better supply and weaker domestic demand uh, across most of these markets. Commodity prices, another key driver for our economic outlook next year especially from an industrial perspective, are forecast to be really moderately below what their 2020 averages were. And I know it's hard to see with your eye here. So for agriculture uh, and and grains, those forecasts are about 5% below the outlook uh, or the average for 2022. But energy prices are forecast to be about 20% below. So a lot of improvement on that front. Uh, partly driven by weaker demand from China, but also driven by expanding OPEC supply. Um, And if we dig in uh, on oil, Brent crude oil, which is the biggest international benchmark and also the most important driver of your gasoline prices here in the United States, actually is down about 20% off its November peak uh, national average gas prices are running uh, around 325 now versus their summer peak of $5. And you can see on the right hand side that if we look at futures markets, they say that um, not only did they show a decline over the course of the year, but we've moved down from the futures forecast in December, the top line, to the uh, lower line that's just taken from earlier this week with oil prices forecast to be in the mid to high 70s over the course of the year. So let's wrap up. GDP growth is forecast to step down again in 2023 in most large economies, with the exception of China, and I know we're going to get a rich discussion from Mary in a moment, uh, and consensus forecasts call for about a 2% global rate for the year. Inflation preliminarily appears to have finally peaked in most major markets. We can't declare victory yet that we need to see more months of data, and they still remain far above central bank targets. And so that's work to be done, um, not just in 2023, but into 2024 to get it down. Monetary tightening to bring that inflation under control is dampening economic activity virtually around the globe. But the good news is that global supply chains have improved significantly since their their worst state in late 2021 and shipping costs have largely retraced um, although they're still about twice pre-pandemic levels in terms of auto production 2022 did, was an improvement from 2020 when we had lockdowns in 2021 when the chip crisis was at its worst but still below 2019 levels um, they continued to hold back sales in 2022 although 2023 looks better from a chip supply and production perspective and lastly, commodity prices are forecast to be below twenty twenty two averages due to weak global growth. Thank you very much. Thank you, Elaine.
3: We will now turn to China. Mary let's-
5: Great. Thanks very much, and thanks for being with us this morning. Um, first of all, it's a it's an honor to be on this panel, and I'm learning so much this morning. Uh, secondly, it's great to be here with um, NABE. I, some of you may know I spent 30 years as a college professor in the economics department at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. And as such, I really appreciated the um, outreach from NABE to the academic community to help prepare undergraduates for... Life in the labor market. Um, it's, it's really helpful, and I hope that I uh, thank the members who have supported those efforts. So, turning now to my current occupation at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, which is China and China's exit uh, rather uh, rapid um, and un- unanticipatedly rapid exit from zero COVID and the challenges for Chinese policy and Chinese policymakers in 2023. Uh, China began the year um, as one of the few economies that had grown during the pandemic, uh, looking forward to a year that was to be marked by stability, looking forward to President Xi's um, unprecedented third term at the helm. Uh, unfortunately, what happened in 2022 was a surprisingly dismal economic and pre- uh, performance and also performance on social welfare measures. Um, 2022 started brightly, um, with most GDP growth forecasts hovering around 5%. Unfortunately, that was not to be. Here I have charted what the um, uh, major forecasters were predicting in January 1, 2022, and what uh, they what the estimates are when we get the year-end numbers for 2022. And you can see that they have moved um, from a consensus... From mid, mid fours to mid fives, now the consensus is around 3% for 2022. So this is just a, maybe to say, yes, it's great to be an economist, especially in interesting times, right? It's not really a curse for us, but it's also good to be humble, particularly in the face of the coronavirus. So what happened? Um, there are many things that we could point. I'm only gonna point out three factors. One, of course, the main which is the COVID surge uh, that happened in early 2022 and the Chinese response, which was for me lockdowns, uh, not only in major cities, but throughout the country. Um, I think at one point over hundred cities in China were in some form of lockdown. The resulting collapse in real consumption inside China. And of course the ongoing worsening property crisis, which is a, is a very serious issue that the Chinese authorities have to take into account as they set their monetary and fiscal policy. Um, Just a quick snapshot to show what happened in terms of the lockdowns and the limiting on public personal mobility. Uh, We see here in the blue line um, Shanghai, and you see the dramatic lockdown between April and June, uh, total collapse in subway ridership. Um, The gray is Beijing, and we see again a sharp downfall both for Beijing and for Shanghai at the end of the year um, as the coronavirus uh, has again begun to surge. Um, Not surprisingly, uh, given this vicious cycle of lockdowns, uh, end of personal mobility, demand collapse, uh, firms shutting, especially in the service sector, job loss, we see more than uh, demand collapse, so a vicious cycle, Um, you see it reflected in the dramatic uh, decline in consumer confidence, which started almost immediately in 2022, with the beginning of the outbreaks. Um, this is uh, just to look at what happened. We saw longer delivery times, so fewer back orders. So basically, we were having um, some ability of um, the uh, supply side to continue to, to produce, um, but a real collapse in demand. So it's not just that China has faced um, some headwinds globally, we all know about the geopolitical tensions between the US and China in particular, but also in primarily a collapse in domestic demand. Um, one big driver of the Chinese economy is of course the housing sector. And the housing sector has been in crisis since 2020. Um, so we're going on the third year of this. The rate of new housing starts fell fairly precipitously after June 2021. Um, Now part of this was driven by um, a well-intentioned desire by the leadership to get the property sector under control. As many people know, it was becoming a a system that was built on the belief of ever-increasing property prices. Um, It's a very important sector to the economy by some accounts by broad measures, including Uh, not only cement and steel, but also the furnishings that go into the housing sector. It's upward of 30% of the economy affected by decline in new housing starts. Um, But the need for the uh, leadership to get this system under control was evident from increasing number of Vacancies of unsold units, so basically, particularly in second and third tier cities, the realization that the sector was widely overbuilt, that the whole program of building on higher and higher prices is just simply not sustainable. Uh, The leadership responded with the so-called three red lines in 2020, uh, furthering that to constraints on banks, basically to reduce the flow of credit to the sector. That of course led to some pretty serious and well-publicized defaults by major developers and uh, widespread financial trouble for smaller developers, which may not make the financial times, um, and um, a continuing decline in home buyers' confidence, and so a collapse in demand and a collapse in starts. So what's ahead for the Chinese economy in 2023? Of course, coming forward with the challenges and constraints that they inherit from 2022. The first challenge is, of course, to be the weather, the ongoing surge that is happening right now in China, and then uh, to revive growth in the domestic economy. Um, Most forecasters expect a significant bounce in GDP activity in 2023, from about 3% to between 4 or 4.5% and 5%. My own view is that this is very likely to happen, but it's gonna require not only nimble and deft policy making, but also some, some luck. So the first challenge, of course, is to weather the surge and preserve lives. Um, you know, Even as we speak, there are people who are having trouble getting needed supplies. One thing that I think that has really surprised the global economy is how ill-prepared the country seemed to be for the complete removal of the zero COVID policy. So the elimination of mobility restrictions has led to a surge in infections, illness and death. Of course, many people have had very mild cases as many of us have had here in the United States, but clearly the same as we saw here, there's very vulnerable elderly uh, and people with chronic illnesses and many of them will not survive the COVID wave. Um, We are at a very tenuous point in the calendar for China Saturday marks the beginning of the Lunar New Year. Many people return to the rural areas. The rural health system is uh, underdeveloped. Many do not have even the basic fever-reducing supply medicines that they will need for the upcoming surge. So we are um, you know, hoping for the best, hoping for our, a good outcome for our friends in China, but it's going to be a very difficult few months. Now, what will the challenge be for policymakers? Well, Chinese policymakers were already very active in 2022, using monetary and fiscal tools to stimulate the economy. They will have to do more with less in 2023. Um, as many people know, their fiscal tools are underdeveloped. They don't have the ability, or even it seems, the inclination to provide direct support to households, something that was very important in the recovery in the United States. China has a very thin safety net and it's been unwilling to provide this type of direct support, even as many people have lost their businesses and their jobs. What have they used instead is a series of fiscal tools such as, and importantly, VAT rebates to companies, so they've used changes in fees uh, and tax rates to try to to stimulate on the supply side. Um, As we've seen already, this has led to problems on the demand side. Even when the supply is there, the demand hasn't been. Um, There is continued reliance on the traditional tool, which is government investment. Uh, Infrastructure development investment was up 12% year on year in 2022. That's a lot given that the projects that China is able to invest in um, have, at least many of them, seem to have very low rates of return. The leadership this year is talking about investing in things related to the energy transition, including things like building out its long-term plan for high-speed rail, um, as well as consumer subsidies on EVs. Monetary policy is also used, but we also know that China faces constraints um, with rising uh, rates in the West, um, and concern about not only capital outflows, but also the pressure it puts on its currency. So the Chinese uh, authorities are going to have to do more with a limited set of tools. Um, there is a huge challenge in reviving household consumption. We've already seen that household uh, confidence has has really tanked. Uh, it's been, uh, the growth in household, uh, real household consumption has been quite variable since the beginning of COVID. Um, interestingly, Chinese households do appear to have excess savings, something that helped to fuel a post uh, COVID, if we can call this post-COVID uh, boom in the West, but Chinese households interestingly are putting these into more longer-term uh, safe, 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 sorry, savings deposits. So they look like they're locking in for the long term, rather than getting ready to sell. Now, in other Asian countries which experienced very dramatic lockdowns, like uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, South Korea, there was at least um, one to two quarters where demand did not revive. It took that long for demand to revive. There was something of a boom. So most forecasters are expecting to have more vibrant growth in the second half of 2024 as consumption begins to pick up. Another challenge for the Chinese leadership is going to be adjusting to a slow, slowly uh, a slowing global economy. The, the World Trade Organization predicts that world trade is only gonna grow 1%. And, given some of the forecasts we've heard today, we might be lucky to get that. Um, we have seen, you can see in this chart, this is the contribution to GDP growth but to, from investment and from net exports, that since the beginning of the pandemic, net exports has contributed positively to Chinese GDP growth. And that is unlikely, unlikely in the face of decreased net consumption, decreased real consumption, it seems to be unlikely that that will be what comes to the rescue. That's gonna put more pressure, of course, on the authorities to engage in public investment. The last big challenge, of course, is to stabilize the property sector, and here the real goal is to stabilize prices while continuing to reduce credit to the sector, a very difficult balancing act. Some might say a tight a tight rope that they need to walk. Uh, walk. New home prices have stabilized in real months, although, as I mentioned earlier, um, Robin's colleague at IIF, Jean Ma, this morning was Tweeting out a very interesting chart showing that home buyers' confidence has continued to decline. So it's going to be a difficult task to stabilize prices while continuing to shrink the sector. So um, let me conclude with a few remarks. Summary So, after a dismal economic and social performance in 2020, the Chinese economy is expected to rebound in 2023. But I hope I've given you some idea that the unique features of the Chinese economy and the challenges that are facing the Chinese leadership are going to complicate their policy responses. And uh, one has to put a wide confidence interval around any growth forecast for China this year. Uh, policymakers are going to have to be both nimble and responsive. Um, interestingly enough, just Earlier this week, we met with a high-level delegation of economists from China. It was great to see old friends in person after so long a time. Um, many of them look for some upside risks, faster passing of the COVID waves. Um, by some accounts, over 90% of Beijing has already been, people in Beijing have already been infected with the virus. It's moving very rapidly through Shanghai right now. So there is some hope that the virus will move quickly through the population, create natural immunity, create um, Vaccination programs are continuing very vigorously, so some hope that this could pass rather quickly. Um, There is also hope of major government stimulus, particularly, as I said, on infrastructure, and then perhaps better than expected growth in net exports. That has to be weighed against significant downside risks, which would include, of course, much worse damage from the virus, including in the rural areas, Uh, slower consumption rebound, and we have some... Some signs already that that's possible. Um, Slower global growth and a bigger fall than expected in net exports. And of course, the ongoing financial risk coming from the property sector. So it's going to be a very interesting year uh, to watch what happens in the Chinese economy and to watch the Chinese uh, policy making response as well. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. All right, Robin Brooks,
3: IIS. Take us home, Robin. (laughs)
6: Thank you so much. It's uh, an honor to be here, Um, and I've really enjoyed listening to all the speakers. So my job today is uh, to talk about uh, the last piece of the puzzle, emerging markets. Um, But I'm also going to talk about uh, the global situation from the perspective of a market participant, so someone who's investing, um, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully, and uh, comment on the happenings in global markets and and what people are pricing and expecting for central banks in in a fairly challenging time. Um, So uh, just in in terms of overview, I will uh, review uh, last year. And obviously, there were many, many big shocks uh, last year. The prism through which perhaps you can summarize everything is the dollar. Uh, The dollar um, has been incredibly strong. It's been on a tear. But it basically had a turning point in the middle of 2022. um, And that was when the Fed accelerated uh, the pace of hikes to 75 basis points starting in June, July, uh, September, and November. Uh, And so that kind of supercharged the dollar against emerging markets. This was basically a U.S. inflation scare uh, that caused people to pull back from riskier assets. Uh, Emerging markets are not unique in that. Um, uh, People pulled back from U.S. equities as well. Um, And now that inflation is moderating, looking into 2023, I'll argue that um, actually emerging markets are quite well positioned. There is a footnote to That big picture, which is frontier markets, so I'm talking about places like uh, Pakistan, or Ghana, or uh, perhaps even Egypt, and they have been shut out to a much greater degree and have not benefited from this ebb and flow of global capital flows. I will finish uh, with some medium term questions, which I think honestly are, the more important ones. Uh, There is so much going on in terms of the global economy. I'm gonna talk about sanctions, and in particular how we need to think about sanctions when we face a current account surplus foe. This is key. The current account surplus changes everything. If we use financial sanctions on a capital exporter, we cannot expect the same bang for the buck as when we sanction a current account deficit country because a current account surplus country exports capital, it doesn't import capital. Uh, I'll talk about uh, the world becoming multipolar. The the fact that so many countries uh, in emerging markets that perhaps are non-aligned have big current account surpluses gives them a lot of cash to play with. It makes the IMF, the World Bank, the Washington Consensus uh, less powerful. And lastly, I'll talk about the geopolitics um, and the longer term repercussions of the war. So on this slide, um, I show you in left in the left chart the dollar. Um, and this is basically a summary of what happened last year. Uh, emerging markets are in blue. This is the dollar against all the big emerging markets. Uh, and the black line is uh, the dollar versus advanced economies. The key, key talking point is that actually uh, the dollar rose much more against other advanced economies than it did against emerging markets. Emerging markets were resilient. We are not talking about uh, emerging markets akin to the Asian financial crisis anymore, not even the '08 crisis, the Great Recession. They are much more resilient these days and we have seen that. Uh, in fact, if you look at the decomposition of how different emerging markets did, Many of them benefited when Russia first invaded Ukraine. That sounds perverse, but there are many commodity exporters in emerging markets. Think of Brazil, think of Colombia, which exports oil. Uh, Oil prices went through the roof. That was a net positive for a lot of these countries. And that rally in these currencies was only nipped in the bud when the Fed turned more hawkish around the middle of the year. Um, Frontier markets are shut out, and our expectation is that they will remain shut out. So this chart shows you the MB spreads. So these are the spreads, secondary market spreads on dollar-denominated debt. You can see that uh, Pakistan, for example, is, is essentially shut. And, and there are many other frontier markets where the situation is shut as well. So last year was a pivot, right? We had this U.S. inflation scare, and then we had inflation abating. This is key to the thesis of emerging markets as we go into this here. This chart shows you inflation dynamics on the left in the United States and then in the Eurozone. I would not presume with these esteemed speakers to say much other than um, that the inflation dynamics in the United States have clearly turned better. When we calculate the combined weight of items in the CPI with inflation above target, so above the 2%, the combined weight in high-frequency data that we track in month-over-month inflation, when we seasonally adjust that and and run it through different screens, the combined weight has actually close to normalized in terms of items running above um, target. Uh, That's really good news. The eurozone has had a different dynamic because obviously it's been subject to Putin's energy war. Um, Energy prices have stayed higher, have continued to rise for longer. But even there in the November data before the uh, December data that Philip talked about just now, there was the first sign of moderation. So when we look at market pricing, President Bostic talked about um, the terminal rate for the federal funds rate going to five uh, thereabouts That is essentially what markets are pricing, markets are then pricing a more benign inflation scenario with cuts priced in the second half of the year and thereafter, and that's basically the profile that markets are pricing uh, for other G10 economies as well. So a hump-shaped pattern in terms of monetary policy tightening with some of that tightening being taken back in fairly short order. I think, as a market participant, and obviously this is just my opinion, I'm just speaking for myself, I think the Fed basically gets a 10 out of 10 uh, in terms of handling this crisis. I think, you know, ex post uh, Monday morning quarterbacking (laughs) is always easy, but think of how nuts the pandemic was, right, before we had vaccines, uncertainty was massive. The one thing that I think needs to be revisited, uh, both in the economic profession and within the Fed, is the lessons that were learned in the 2013 Tabor Tantrum. At the time, Ben Bernanke basically verbally intervened to push up long-term interest rates. Uh, You will see in the left chart the two-year yield, which, because the Fed had forward guidance, it said, we will not hike on any foreseeable horizon. Two-year yield remained very low. Markets did not really, in any appreciable manner, price rate hikes. Uh, But the 10-year yield rose very sharply. And this was basically Ben Bernanke saying, real yields are too low. Come on, people, we need higher yields. And that kind of verbal intervention in 2013 has come to be seen today as a a policy mistake. Um, Yields rose a lot, very quickly. But it would have been a way for the Fed to tighten earlier uh, in 2021 when vaccines were taking hold, when the recovery was really gunning, when financial conditions were very loose. And verbally intervening is always easier than forming a consensus on the FOMC and getting everyone to rally <laughs> a, a, a behind a view. Um, we specialize a lot in capital flows and the capital flow picture in terms of issuance Uh, of hard currency denominated debt in emerging markets is really quite grim. Uh, Most emerging markets had negative net issuance in 2022. But again, you have to see that through the lens that markets were doing okay, right? Uh, All the metrics that we track in terms of market dislocation, so whether it's cross-currency basis, whether whether it's different credit spreads, they have been relatively well-behaved. So I think you want to see all this from a perspective of glass half full. Okay, medium term, big picture. What have we learned? We have done this past year a sanctions experiment. We sanctioned some Russian financial institutions, including the central bank. That has turned out to be not particularly effective. Why? Because Russia is an energy exporter. We carved out energy. We allowed Russia to keep selling (coughs) energy. If you sanction some banks, including the central bank, the foreign assets that are accumulated from those energy sales will just shift to unsanctioned banks. And that is what we have seen in the left chart when you look at where uh, foreign assets are accumulated. They, not surprisingly, have shifted in terms of accumulation from the central bank, which is sanctioned, to non-sanctioned financial entities. It's a little bit like we picked winners and losers in the financial system in Russia. That was not our intention, we wanted to hurt Russia, but in the end, the real exogenous force here is they're exporting energy, they're getting paid for it in euros and dollars. They will put those on a foreign bank account and we didn't prevent that. The way to prevent it is to sanction the entire financial system, but then you're back to a trade embargo because Putin is not gonna sell stuff for free. If we can't pay him, He's not gonna sell it to us. So it all comes back to, if there's a current account surplus country, you have to target the current account surplus, the trade side of the balance of payments. And that is what the G7 price cap now does. Now, when we, so we we built up a, based on uh, proprietary data, a tracking of oil tankers. And basically what has happened this past year is that Western resources, so oil tankers, insurance, all the services that go with the shipment of oil, we have used those to basically transport Russian oil to the global economy. Um, One country in particular, Greece, has basically been responsible for 60% of oil transport out of Russia. So the question is, is this what we want to be doing if our purpose is to tighten financial conditions in Russia, to make the war as unpleasant as possible, or uh, Vladimir Putin, I am not sure. And I think um, we want to examine very carefully how proactive we were in our sanctions and how we thought about financial sanctions versus trade. Um, Two last points, we are, because for example, Russia has such a large current account surplus, it has a ton of money to play with. So take the example of Turkey. Turkey has a giant current accounts uh, deficit Ordinarily, Turkey now would be struggling uh, because it is having difficulty financing its current account deficit. Um, It is not having uh, struggles financing the current account deficit today. It's getting a ton of money. And we actually don't understand uh, very clearly where that money is coming from, but it's a decent guess that a lot of money is from Russia. You could see that in this chart of the balance of payments. There are big loans coming in. These are not grants, these are not gifts. The money will have to be repaid, but they are key in allowing President Erdogan to make it to elections, which will be in a few months', months time. Uh, last uh, thing I'll talk about is geopolitics. Last year was a very, very profound shock for investors. Russia's invasion of Ukraine was unexpected. It is reshaping how people think about the world. And I think where um, non-democratic countries were considered stable and a refuge in the past, I think that's over. Um, And so we have seen that in the capital flows that we track. We are well known for having some of the best tracking at very high frequency. So China inflows from the West have basically stopped. And that was one of the biggest changes mm-hmm. in 2022. Um, and the rest of emerging markets will benefit because um, uh, it is a compositional shift that in, we think, in particular, will, will benefit some of the what are considered messy democracies in Latin America. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's good in terms of those trade partners. We forecast global recession. We do not forecast US recession. I'm in line with Elaine and others here. US growth is around 1%. But we do have adjusting for base effects in this table. Uh, If you look at carry uh, in 2023, the way to read this table is we have global growth uh, in 2023 of 1.7%. The carry component, statistical carry component of that is 0.4. So think of growth, true growth of as roughly 1.3%. If you then look at 2009, so During the global financial crisis, headline global growth was around 0.6, but the statistical carryover at the time was was deeply negative because the crisis already started in 2008. So adjusting for the negative carry back then, that growth rate was around plus 1.3 also. So we are at very low forecasting uh, uh, global recessionary uh, levels. I think, uh, in terms of emerging markets, we're actually uh, fairly positive because commodity prices are quite elevated still. Um, and then I think for policymakers, some of these medium-term questions are really, really important. So. I'm sorry.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you to all the speakers—an incredible uh, tour de force of the global economy. Uh, get your questions ready. Uh, we are. We have. Uh, generous amount of time for, for q and I'm going to start with a couple of my own uh, using the moderator's prerogative. So I'm going to start with a question um, for our central bank representatives. Um, both of you just came out of a uh, recent meeting um, that featured a forecast of higher inflation than your prior forecasts. Um, uh, Phil, you talked about that at some length. Uh, and uh, alongside a forecast of tighter policy and lower growth. And you are both now uh, have inflation forecasts sort of for 2023 and beyond that are above kind of consensus forecasts. So is the message from uh, the central banks that um, the policy tools are less effective Uh, or that you're more worried than you were a few months ago about uh, a more deeply embedded inflation dynamic? How do we square the circle of uh, tighter policy path, weaker growth, and higher inflation?
1: All right, as the home team. I guess I'll go first. Um, (laughs) So I think... For me, the way I think about this is, this is not a normal economy. And the dynamic that got us to this inflationary condition is really different than what we've seen historically. And the driver is um, um, stubbornly persistent elevated demand and supply that has been unable to, to respond as robustly as possible businesses are trying to do that response Uh, a lot of the supply bottlenecks have kind of resolved themselves but the labor markets are incredibly tight they can't get the workers they would need to respond to the demand for their goods fully at the level and so I think the challenge that we have right now is um, what's the pace at which demand can come down our policy is going to do a bit on that but you know as I mentioned families, many families in America still have uh, savings levels that are far above what we would see historically. We are just now starting to see those things come down. I, I talk, one of the questions, my standard question now for bankers is, compared to where we were before, um, how are your customers in terms of their savings levels? And until uh, September, everyone said, far elevated, in some instances 50% higher than normal, uh, and they were not coming down at all. We are now starting to see that on the other side now uh, they're starting to drop, and as they drop I think we're going to see demand uh, continue to come down as well. But our policy has actually contributed to that dynamic, and so so to me I think that the, the, the tighter policy path, weaker growth, that whole dynamic is a function of us trying to attack a very idiosyncratic world content or, or economic context that's driven by the pandemic
3: so to so so the answer seems to be you are more worried than you were three months ago about the deeply embedded inflationary dynamic
1: so um okay so i worry all the time <laughs> and, and my level of worry is perpetually heightened so i I, I rarely say I'm more worried. What I would say is um, because things are unprecedented, because of this pandemic has been so unique, it's hard to have firm expectations about how things are gonna evolve over time. And so we are learning as we are living and then readapting our policy stance and perspectives based on that. Um, you know, my outlook at the beginning of 2022 was really different than what we have now. And, and the war in, in Ukraine really was a sea change in terms of having to just, just step everything up and push our expectations about when normalization was going to occur. Uh, but even with that, you know, inflation has been more persistent than I projected, even in the summertime. Uh, labor market strength has persisted far longer than, than I projected, and I think it's just because Um, The pandemic, and I'm going to talk a bit about this 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 afternoon, um, the pandemic has triggered a lot of changes in terms of how our economy operates, and we are still in that transitional space. We have not gotten to our new steady state in terms of how labor markets are going to work, how supply chains are going to be structured and and designed, and all those things mean that we're very much in flux, and it's hard to know for sure um, how things are going to evolve on a week-to-week or a month-to-month basis.
2: So, for us, maybe one basic point to make, and maybe it 's a bit different to the Fed approach is the staff forecast that we had in december they don 't ask us the policymakers where the future policy path is going to be. they take the market interest rates so so the the forecast we had was based on the market yield curve, which was basically lower. Then than it is now, uh, for, for, to, to make one, one basic comparison. But behind that does reflect an ongoing issue, which is uh, there's a high degree of uncertainty, uh, and clearly uh, in the market there is a. I mean, I think more or less there's a similarity view for 23. There's going to be a lot, you know, again, there's a the mechanics of base effects uh, and so on, which does mean there'll be a big drop of inflation uh, this year. But what is probably true over the course of the autumn is the view has changed about the persistence of the level of energy prices. So even if energy inflation drops out, because you know, where it's going to stabilize, even with the drops we've seen recently, is still the case, the assessment is, there's going to be, unless something fundamentally changes, even though this winter looks okay now, at least for now, there's a lot of concerns about next winter. Um, and so when you look forward, a big part of our revised forecast is basically, saying, look, the level of energy prices, um, you know, which is a partly embedded in the future's prices for gas. And again, for us, it's what I say, it's by and large, it's about gas, because uh, oil is a global issue, but, but gas is much more local. Uh, it is essentially concerned concern that, that, that the... Energy prices are going to be a challenge for for a long time under the current configuration of the war, and therefore, even for example now that the spot price of gas has been falling, utility companies are forward-looking. Utility companies, you know, when they think about the prices they charge retail customers, they also have to think about well, you know, what is a sustainable price because. By and large, they they didn't pass through all of the increases in uh, wholesale prices last year in many countries. But equally, um, when you you think about their behavior, they're not going to turn on a dime uh, now. So compared to to market forecasts, probably the fact that the euro system, uh, the central banks in the member countries know a lot about individual utility companies. And when we looked at it, we were coming up with, with higher uh, energy inflation for longer than the market. That's number one. Number two, it's an interesting issue about... Uh, but here, here it's legitimate for a range of views about, about basically... Uh, none of us really knows a huge amount in terms of the uh, pass-through decisions. Essentially, how much of cost increases... Are absorbed by profit margins how much will be passed through and again there's an issue for last year with the pandemic reopening uh, there was money uh, people had unspent savings Uh, it was an environment where a lot of price increases could happen Um, and so for the forecast for next year and so on it does have to take into account is is that environment going to persist Um, and that's I think a very important global issue and a domestic issue let me uh, remind everyone here about excess savings. Um, there's certainly excess savings in Europe, but it's fundamentally different. Uh, most of the excess savings in Europe were coming from essentially uh, foregone consumption in the lockdown. There was much lower role for, for uh, fiscal transfers. There was definitely a lot of fiscal transfers which basically maintained uh, uh, incomes to, to a good degree, but, but the composition of excess savings is heavily skewed to the well-off. So there's a very different uh, prediction in terms of uh, the consumption implications. Um, So so for those who are are in the the bottom uh, uh, quintiles of of the population, they've been really hit by these uh, high energy price increases, uh, food increases, the the weight of those items in their basket is much higher than for a rich person, and they don't have the excess savings. The excess savings are are with, with the rich. And it's not so clear uh, the, what the propensity to consume out of that is going to be. What I would say is typically uh, energy shocks are very recessionary. It's been much less so on this occasion. And I'm sure that's partly because that cushion of excess savings has meant that you know, the consumption response you know, has been less drastic. I mean, I think we can all agree about that. It's also the case in the pandemic. There was a, in Europe, there's a lot of transfers to, to, to companies as well. So company balance sheets have also been, entering this period, maybe stronger than, than you might expect. So what I would say, there's a, a lot of uncertainty um, uh, upcoming, and this goes back to why, although it's kind of interesting sometimes to forecast, uh, I know that the Fed with adopt dot plot even, mm-hmm. a mechanism to talk about where you expect things are going we 're trying to avoid that as an ECB you know, <laughs> uh, and for a good reason, which is you can say it 's all a conditional projection saying based on what I think today here 's what I think, but you know, and we, we 're doing it to some extent because we 're fairly sure uh, you know, about the next meeting, and then in march we 'll we'll have a, a new forecast. But if you think about the whole of next year, I mean there 's many different paths possible f- for the European economy. And that's what I was saying earlier on is, of course, energy and food are super important and they also feed into core in a big way. Uh, but, but the wage issue, you know, we have very staggered wage setting uh, within countries, across countries in Europe. So, so the kind of dy- dynamic of, of the labor market, of wages and of fiscal, because a lot of fiscal measures are probably state-dependent. Maybe with the easing of energy prices, some of these measures may actually turn out to be less necessary and uh, are dialed back to some extent. So uh, there's a ton of issues in, in the forecast which are essentially correlated with each other, which led to a fairly big revision in One Direction in, in, in December. But all of these interaction effects will, will, will be an ongoing issue. So maybe, um, but Raphael mentioned in his remarks, we would also kind of philosophically take the view. It's not the goal. We don't think about monetary policy saying, let's, "Let's kind of dial it up quickly," but let's release the interest rate very quickly. Also, at the first hint of a stabilisation, it's much more natural to think about, "Let's bring rates to a level where we think that's going to help inflation come back to two percent in a timely manner." And you know, the, the kind of uh, criteria by which you would start to implement cuts, you know, I, I think. Uh, you would have to take into account uh, the level of certainty or confidence you would have in, in any, I mean, you still definitely want to work on the projection. You shouldn't wait until inflation has fallen all the way to two. You do want to anticipate, uh, but that anticipation basically does have to take into account uh, the nature of the risk distribution you know, in, in that kind of middle stage of, of this process.
3: Thank you, thank you. Actually, let me follow up with Robin um, on that uh, question. What are your thoughts around why the market uh, inflation compensation in European and U.S. markets, generally speaking, is a bit more optimistic than the central bankers themselves in the next few years? <laughs>
6: um, wishful thinking. Um, <laughs> um, so first of all, let me say that...
3: Uh, is it a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment.
6: Yes. So. Um, so we have seen the uh, inflation dynamics in the United States slow significantly, um, and I think that is a very real uh, development that we first flagged um, in July in the June CPI report, and, and that has more or less persisted. There have been some bumps along the road, but basically it's been a fairly straight line development. So my prior and the markets, and I'm I think Probably it's fair to, to say that perhaps the decoupling is more pronounced for Europe at this point is that the market is assuming that if the U.S. is seeing inflation fall and overheating signs were more pronounced um, after COVID and the domestic demand component was more pronounced after COVID during the recovery, then for the eurozone where the initial conditions are you know, really quite different along many dimensions, uh, then we should see a similar disinflation process. I think all the all the points that Philip mentioned on the fiscal support through price caps and so forth, that obviously is um, is a wrinkle, mm-hmm. but I think the market is basically taking that perspective and it's one that I would agree with. Okay, thank you.
3: Um
7: Following up on 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 comments by President Bostic and Board Member Lane, um, uh,
1: monetary policy.
3: Okay, and I've been asked to repeat the question. So the question is um, whether the degree of uncertainty limits their ability to be forward-looking.
1: So, um, sure. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the confidence bands during this pandemic for any kind of projection have been wide, and as you get further from the current time, they get wider. So, so it is difficult, and you know, for me, I think this is one of the reasons why we are leaning a lot more on alternative sources of data. So we do, uh, at, at the Atlanta Fed, a lot of surveying of businesses, of CFOs and the like, to try to get real-time information, to try to identify shifts in sentiment before they're going to show up in the aggregate statistics. And we have found that to be quite helpful in, uh, in our understanding of, say, labor markets today, which, uh, you know, uh, businesses have told us that it is things are getting easier for them, and that's been a byproduct of these surveys. And also, uh, we do an ex- uh, sort of a heightened amount of just one-on-one discussions with leaders. We call it our regional, informa- regional economic information network. Uh, and so in the course of an FOMC cycle, we'll talk to upwards of 120 or 130 CEOs uh, to try to collect information in a, in, a, in a less structured way to try to understand those things. I think that in this environment that those types of sources and, and actually there's been a lot more you even see in public spaces about you know, high frequency data sources like your credit card things and the like that we're all trying to find ways to, to draw signal mm-hmm. In an environment where there's just so much uncertainty and noise, it's 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 actually I think going to revolutionize and transform how we think about uh, what a good source of data is, Uh, and so we've been leaning in on that. um, But you know, this is these are hard times to be doing forecasting. It's it's very difficult for everyone.
7: Yeah,
2: I mean, I I think it's very interesting uh, issue, but, but I think paradoxically. What you end up uh, concluding is, more than ever, modeling is important. Because because it's very kind of uh, uh, strong economic uh, forces at work. And how you think about the economic forces require you to, to, to model it. So what I put up in my slide deck is essentially, how do we think about the fact that clearly in 22 there's a lot of surprise inflation? Clearly, real wages have fallen uh, quite a bit. Now, in a European context where there's been a terms of trade shock, some degree of real wage adjustment may may be uh, appropriate. So I'm not saying that the baseline is you you just fully recover the real wage level that was there before. But there's a pretty strong economic reason why, in the context of a labor market, which has very low unemployment. Uh, in a number of countries, a fair amount of vacancies. Uh, conceptually, and in the models, it's going to tell you that there's going to be more um, uh, wage increases than, than uh, if you just did an empirical exercise or if you relied on the latest readings. We're not relying on the latest readings because they still have been muted because there's a lot of inertia in the labour market. Uh, a bit like Raphael's... I mean, what's interesting is, in order to match what the models need what you do have to do is put more effort into data collection. So, you know, we, also, we, look, uh, we always uh, look at the Atlanta Fed, actually, as a, as a very good model for lots of things. But we also would, would rely quite a bit on our surveys of corporates, which is kind of interviews, basically. Uh, we have a new consumer expectation survey, uh, which we were doing anyway, but it turned out to be very well-timed in terms of helping us. Uh, we have another firm... Uh, uh, Survey called safe, which traditionally has been access to finance issues, but actually now we 're going to turn into a quarterly uh, uh, survey with more focus on inflation um, because we really need all of these uh, to, to help us um, uh, fully respect the fact we do need to rely on leading indicators, uh, not, not just on, on past past observations, so you know I, I think uh, more than no matter you know. The alter- if, you, if you agree, in the end, uh, you want some level of, of a belief about where inflation is going to inform policy, uh, you can f- develop that belief uh, through looking at a wide range of uh, approaches, including a lot of models, or you can say m- my gut instinct says this. And I think I would prefer to have a comprehensive approach, Which, but in the end, I mean... We, we put out these point estimates, so I gave you point estimates there. I didn't show you the fan charts, mm-hmm. but, of course, you could always put it. And the fan charts are always really big. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people should – we always have a – in our statement, we do have a risk paragraph where we say, here are the risk factors. Uh, and, you know, we were attuned at, to the risks, I think, throughout last year and in 21 about what could happen. Um, and so policymaking has to take into account the point estimates, uh, but also to take into account the, the nature of the uncertainty, uh, which is two-sided. There's always going to be two-sided uncertainty, uh, but also in terms of the, the kind of biggest policy errors you could make. We're still in a zone where uh, the policy error, and uh, Raphael also had this point earlier on, is basically uh, be, uh, you know, settling too quickly at too, level, a low, too low level of interest rates to do the job. So, so I think, you know, we do have to go to a level of interest rates that we will be confident we'll, we'll make sure inflation comes back to 2%. There's both the short-term and the
7: longer-term aspects in the discussion. The short-term discussion does go a lot. Uh, it, it's difficult to see that the fundamentals are way different in terms of the, uh, what, what Summers' uh, 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 the summer scenario of uh, low inflation and, and best demand. Uh, and the question sort of uh, could be: what, what, what do we expect that we would get back given that? environment or inflation potential inflationary line and, and 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 what are the implications there. And finally relations with China, when when you look at China in terms of labor, in terms of capital, in terms of productivity one thing is the short term but the long term output, how do you see that?
3: Okay, so restating the um question, uh sort of the the uh, essence, I guess, of the inflationary pressure is that there is a real wage hit that in a tight labor market, workers are going to seek to recoup. So how high does unemployment need to go to kind of break that uh, inflationary pressure, whether you have a view on uh, that and then uh, for and, – and, and actually maybe I'd love to hear from Elaine's perspective on – the state of worker bargaining power now, Uh, just being in a company, what do you experience? And then the question on China. um, What was the question?
7: Long-term growth prospects given that uh, labor capsule and productivity
3: All right, maybe we wanna start this time with China? No,
5: sure. So that's a, that's a great question. Um, we were focused on the short run here, but obviously the long run um, will constrain Chinese policymakers' actions if, if, they, if it allows, if conditions allow. So the decline in productivity growth has been something that's been of concern to people who have been watching China since uh, the global financial crisis. Um, by most measures, and we have um, more imperfect data than we used to have, um, it appears that industrial productivity has slowed dramatically. Uh, in particular, entry and exit have slowed dramatically. So the dynamic that we saw after China's entry into the WTO where you had new firms coming in that were better than old firms and then growing rapidly, that dynamic seems to have just fundamentally almost disappeared. And what we have seen in its place is increasing credit, shares going to state-owned enterprises. Um, in the last round... Um, so, last year we saw dramatic spread in, in the investment rates in the two, uh, pretty healthy investment rates into state owned enterprises, and very weak investment in private enterprises. So, the leadership has noticed this, have spoken um, many times about supporting the private sector, most recently coming out of the latest work council, work conference. Um, however, it's like the old uh, commercial where's the beef? People are looking for some <laughs> real actions. Oh, of course, the sure, uh, what may you think of as ill-conceived regulatory uh, actions that were taken in the tech sector seem to be pulling back from those, um, but there's a lot more that needs to be done affirmatively, rather just sort of stop doing harm, but to actually begin to support the private sector and getting credit flowing again. The service sector is, of course, of special concern. China's service sector is now quite large, And um, especially in the small and medium uh, enterprises, they have been really, really, really badly hit by COVID. And that um, covers a lot of employment um, in cities. And so how they're going to try to get some of that dynamic back is a big question mark. So you're pointing to the real big question for the future Mm -hmm. and what the sort of steady state growth is going to be for China over the next five to ten years.
4: On labor bargaining power, I think we've got some mixed signals. So first of all, if you look at the, the biggest signal macroeconomically, and you take labor share of GDP, or basically GDP minus corporate profits, labor share's still down, it hasn't recovered. If you look at different things that make the headlines, if you look at several large collective bargaining agreements, there have been some, some agreements that ended with really quite large uh, annual increases going through, and those structures are actually super complex, so it's not like you just have, these are the increases for the year. So then those have made headlines, and you've seen a number of headlines around efforts to unionize in places you haven't seen it. So uh, one of our Ultium battery plants just decided to go with the UAW, and you've seen you know, mixed things going on between Amazon and Starbucks, and so, so you have some progress towards collective bargaining. Collective bargaining is still really small as a share of the economy and, mm-hmm. and we gotta keep in mind that um, cost of living increases sort of automated as a share of uh, tied to CPI are, are rare <coughs> if existing at all at this point so that helps protect uh, in general against weighed price spirals, reduces the odds but it also means that if you look at the data Uh, And you look at workers overall in general wage increases have not been keeping up with inflation if you look at today's um, Employment report and you look at the year-over-year increases in Wages whether for production and unsupervisory workers or all workers that's still been staying below the rate of inflation started falling more slowly, although I am also mindful of the fact that in four of the last five months, the month over month increases were higher than the CPI increases. So it, it's just fairly mixed at this point.
1: And let me also uh, say everything that's been said is right. The, the, what we, when we talk to businesses, what they tell us is they've increased wages. They have not increased them to the level of inflation because they have confidence that inflation is going to come down, that this is still an episodic experience. Uh, And because of that, um, I think that reduces the probability that we get into a wage-price spiral because the expectations are just not that inflation is going to stay elevated. People want to catch up, but they're not translating that into a forward-looking type of approach. And when we talk to business leaders, um, they are all telling us that their expectations for wage increases are going to be higher than historically, but lower than last year. That we're starting to see that kind of ratchet down back into sort of the more historic ranges that we've seen um, them approach their the labour market.
2: So, 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 I mean, I think a similar point applies in the European situation. So, so, we we would see uh, uh, wage inflation also starting to slow down uh, sooner rather than later. And this is uh, probably the difference to nineteen seventies is there's a very strong. Anchoring of uh, longer-term expectations, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I mean for us, and this is why we, the phrasing we're trying to use also is we want inflation to come back to two percent, not just in the long term. People believe in the long term. If you say twenty twenty-seven and so, on, they fully believe inflation is going to be two percent, uh, but in a timely manner. So it's not, and this is why when we sort of forecast in December, which basically, uh, even though some of it was coming from fiscal. Uh, manipulation, if you like, the fact that inflation will be well away from 2%, not only uh, this year, but also in 24, um, it, it's basically, there's a risk that, that workers will say, well, okay, inflation's not going to remain at 9 or 10, uh, but it's not, you know, not going to get to 2 uh, that quickly. And then if, if that feeds into to the future course of, of uh, uh, weight setting, th- that, that would slow down it would slow down uh, the the reconvergence back to 2%. But in the end, it's important not... I mean, uh, we thought about, but we can't disconnect the labour market and the product market. Because in the end, I mean, if if the firms who are working in product markets see conditions where they could not uh, pass through an increase in labour costs uh, to to prices without losing too much uh, business, uh, this is going to be part of the way the inflation stops. Is that essentially the, the markups, uh, which in some sectors, in tourism and so on, in Europe, this uh, this last uh, number of months, there have been uh, uh, remarkable price increases. Uh, but but you know I don't think that's going to persist with with consumption n- normalising. Um, you know there's going to be much less tolerance for for ongoing uh, price increases, uh, and so the markups will do some of the work, not not just la- la- uh, labour costs. But, of course, they they feed each other, um, because uh, if prices uh, ease, then there's less pressure for this kind of catch-up inflation. Um, What I would say, uh, going to... to, I mean, uh, when this is all over, I mean, there's going to be a whole new wave of uh, new literature on institutions and labour markets, because the cost of living... uh, uh, We don't have a lot of indexation in Europe. In some countries, we do. But definitely in in how... I mean, there's a much more uh, binding minimum wage issue in Europe. And they are, by and large, indexed. Um, and then in terms of how workers and, and firms in, in contractual discussions uh, negotiate, it's at the very least a reference point what the cost of living is. Um, so, so I would be more uh, kind of uh, uh, but, you know, It's more kind of a... Uh, you know, it's not totally coordinated. It's much less unionized in the 70s. But it's probably still more of a macro factor in, in how wages get set as opposed to... What each, what each bilateral bargain between a, an employer and its own workers uh, m- might deliver. Robin, you wanted to
3: add something? I just
6: wanted to. I thought that you also had in there a really interesting question about, and Philip uh, just uh, said when all this is over, <laughs> what is the equilibrium that we go back to? And. Uh, I am inclined to uh, be in your camp that we go back to the secular stagnation, low inflation, low rates world, with one caveat, which is that global debt levels have gone up significantly from before COVID. And there are things that globally in markets are quite worrying. So the last couple of weeks, the BOJ has been struggling terribly to exit uh, yield curve control. It's having to buy very large amounts of JGBs um, uh, on an ongoing basis. And of course, government debt in Japan is 250% of GDP. The gilt market blow up in the UK uh, was exacerbated by LDIs, which are basically just leveraged carry trades. That's a ubiquitous thing that was prevalent in the US treasury market in March 2020 when we had our blow up. And, of course, in Europe, uh, some countries have, uh, on the periphery, have high debt levels and are struggling to access markets also. So I think that we go back to the status quo ex ante with that big caveat.
3: So can I just uh, follow up a little bit and sort of pull a few of these answers together? So, So you were sort of suggesting that because firms at least in the U.S. context, Phil is sort of making a differentiation between mm-hmm. the U.S. and European institutional context in the labor market. But, but Elaine, you are making the point that it's sort of varied across segments of the labor market, that the labor share of GDP remains pretty low and has not risen through the pandemic. You're saying that because firms uh, see it as episodic, they are resisting fully indexing wage increases to the cost of living increase. And that does suggest that firms retain, at least in the US context, a certain amount of power, right? The labor share of GDP tells a story that firms still have power in setting wages,
1: So, uh, despite
3: a tight labor market, despite this very tight labor market, it's not that tight.
1: So yes and no. (laughs) I I actually think firm power for your entry-level worker uh, in terms of setting wages has dropped considerably. Right, right, right. Um, and so if you look at segments of the work, and, and that, I mean, that's a lot of people in terms of the wage bill, it yes. winds up not being uh, proportionally as much. That has changed a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's, that's one thing. The right. second thing I would say is workers are paying attention as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so when they were aware that uh, labor markets were incredibly tight when information about the availability of jobs becomes more easily and readily available, um, they will then use that position and their knowledge to negotiate for things. So uh, in in my district, there are so many places where they, like for banking, for example, they become national labor markets, and Mm -hmm. the local companies are competing with the Bank of Americas and others who can just say, you know, you could just work in Huntsville, home. Alabama yeah. or in Jackson Mississippi um, and I'm going to pay you a B of a wage or whatever it is and so there is There's mar- arbitrage
3: from market arbitrage right home.
1: and so yeah. market power is shifting pretty significantly but it is not uniform across all job categories and that's that's a dynamic that is really playing out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: yeah I wanna, I want to um Agree and add some more detail around what Raphael's saying. It's just differentiated. So we know that the labor market is actually tightest for non-college educated workers, actually. So that's a great turnaround in the relative bargaining power of the non-college educated worker that was the one that wasn't seeing wage gains for the more than decade coming out of the Great Recession. And it's really tight around a certain other sort of rare white-collar skill sets. So... For example, a lot of things around software design and, and computer uh, science and stuff. So those labor markets are really tight. And then there are other places that the labor market may not be so tight well, So when we look at those ratios of, uh, you know, using the JOLTS data and you look at the ratio of job, uh, of vacancies to the unemployed, that ratio is just not 1.7 across mm-hmm. the board. Um, right, so it's probably closer to one to one for a variety of things. And one of the things I've heard a lot anecdotally, but I don't have great data on, is recent college graduates didn't land really fast mm-hmm. in many instances uh, this past year. Um, and so it's it's just quite inconsistent at this point. But one thing we know is that you know job changers made a lot more. They had they had on average. Wage increases that were vastly higher than inflation, um, thanks to their willingness to take risk. Right, so they they traded off security for those near-term higher increases, um, and then we know that the quits rate didn't fall materially in November versus October per the latest JOLTS data. So. It's just very mixed, and on this issue of the potential uh, geographic arbitrage through remote work, we know that postings for remote work are are coming down per information from some of the job search sites Um, and i think that also companies are thinking about how do we compensate and how flat is the compensation across geographies and and how do we think about that are we set up in that state and what does that imply from a tax perspective Um, so there's a lot of complicated questions around that that i think are still being sought sorted out for the medium term I i think we have probably time for one more question yes okay
7: thank you for giving me an opportunity uh, I have a one simple question to President Bostic. Um You told us that this year's GDP growth rate uh, could be one percent. So, which is more optimistic compared to the Fed show in dot plot in December? So, does that mean that you don't expect a recession? So, how do you think about it?
1: Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm an optimist. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm an optimistic warrior in the sense that. Um, you know, we have to put down a number, um, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I think I preface everything. I, I, so I like, I like actually your approach to say get, get away from forecasts altogether in this environment <laughs> uh, because you I mean, you mean always have to craft this with a lot of caveats to say if this progresses the way we expect all these sorts of things. So you know, I, I think that uh, through the momentum in the labor market, we're going to see uh, continue to see production stay strong and and uh, as a result i i think we can get to a one percent now um, i've been uh, maybe i'm on the the high side in terms of how resilient i think the labor market and production is going to be um but that's kind of where we are A, a recession is not my baseline outlook so i i am not expecting that i think i think there's been some degree of consensus on the panel on this, that, that at least in the U.S. context, um, it's well positioned to weather a lot of this, uh, the slowdown. And so... Um,
3: and are you going to disclose your peak rate?
1: So I'm five to five and a quarter. Five to five and a quarter. Is my range for uh, the, the peak. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. And on
3: and, and, um, pace...
1: Um, open on pace. So you know we started a slowing slowing of the pace. I think that's fully appropriate. And now I think we can just let the data lead us and inform how we think about where policy should go.
3: I'm going to shoot my shot here. So. Uh... Is this employment report that we got this morning a twenty five basis point report
1: or a fifty basis point report <laughs> it's a 50-50 report so uh, so so i I am very open on both uh, to both um, you know w- one of the things for me i we got a fair amount of feedback from the business community that the the holiday season experience was going to be a big driver about their expectations about where they're the year is going to go. So as those numbers come out and we get a clearer sense, that will really help me move uh, 25 versus 50. And so I'm really.
3: Uh, so if consumers were resilient, there's more sort of resilience in the pipeline. Maybe tighter policy met, might be appropriate. Pulling exactly. pulling back, then maybe the slowing is more right. in train. Right. Gotcha. All right. With that, thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Let's <laughs> thank the panel.